Welcome to Bone to Pick, Hip Bone Music's Artist of the Month interview series. And we're really pleased to be in Hollywood, California today to interview our featured artist, Bill Reichenbach. And for my money, Bill Reichenbach is the greatest bass trombone player of all time. An amazingly talented gentleman who plays tenor trombone, euphonium, tuba, contrabass trombone, bass trombone, you name it. Also a brilliant composer and arranger and conductor. Bill is originally from Washington, D.C., moved to Los Angeles in 1975, and has since gone on to be, uh, as near as I could tell, the most recorded trombone player of all time. And we're really happy that Bill uh, allowed us into his home today and uh, get a chance to uh, get his insights and, and hear about his amazing career. Thanks so much for having us today, Bill. It's great for us to be here. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Bill, what was it like studying with the legendary Emory Remington at the Eastman School of Music? Well, it was probably pretty much like a religious experience, really, in, a, in, a, in all the positive ways. You know, all the students at the time, and he had, he, he had about 32 students at any given time at the school. He had a full schedule. Everybody was so into what he was doing, you know, his whole system of playing and his personality and all that, you know, you just, you got there and you were part of it instantly. And you, you either went with it or you every once in a while there was a couple of guys that didn't but most of the time you just went with it like for my audition I showed up for my audition and I met him and he he greeted me like an old friend because my teacher Bob Isley had been one of his students back in the 30s and and then he sang all of my stuff with me while I was trying to play it and I thought he's singing so loud he can't even hear me so it totally relaxed me I got real relaxed I played comfortably and and it was uh, it was real real easy and 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 every moment in the studio with him was was spectacular. That's great. Um, your dad was a great drummer in the Washington D.C. area where you grew up. Um, what uh, influence did he have on you as a young developing musician? Well, a lot. Um, he never discouraged me about. I kind of wanted to, I thought I wanted to be a musician pretty young, you know, and I started out playing drums when I was about four years old, and, and I used to go to rehearsals with him, I enjoyed being around musicians, and he started talking about music like I was a grown-up, like, I, I remember him, one time when I was, we were going down to a rehearsal downtown, I was standing up on the seat of the car, I was that small, and he's telling me that if you're going to play uh, Body and Soul, you have to play it in D-flat. I remember that <laughs> from about age five. Now, why was he telling me that? I don't know. But so, so when, I, when I was like 10 years old, getting up to my next birthday, he says, I'll give you a choice for your birthday. You can either get a camera or I'll, I'll get you a trombone. And I thought, oh, I really want a trombone. I don't know why, except that I thought that trombones were kind of funny. And, and as it turns out, they are. So That's great. Um, you spent the better part of a year touring with uh, Buddy Rich in uh, 1972. And uh, when I got on the band in 1983, I was already a big Bill Reichenbach fan, and I asked him about you, and uh, he raved about you, and he didn't rave about anybody. So uh, <laughs> I took that as a very good sign. Um, what are your memories of playing on Buddy's band, and also that great feature that you played on the on the tune Wave? Well, first of all, the ensemble uh, on Buddy's band was a very certain kind of ensemble because he played everybody's parts. 
in one way or the other. So it was like a picture where every element of the picture is outlined by a fine dark line. It's clear. Everything was clear. There was no choice about where you would play anything. So you went with his time feel, which um, for, you know, whether you object to that or not, it created an exciting ensemble and the ensemble learned how to play together and learning how to trust all the other musicians to play. That's how you learn ensemble anyway. You learn to trust everybody and you play. And, and he drove the ensemble in a certain way. His whole approach to it was that. He wanted it to line up on him and it did. And it worked that way for what it was, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, he, the when he the wave um, arrangement was actually written by written for John Lays who mm. preceded me on the band and then quit for for what turned out to be just the time that I was on the band and then he came back just in time for me to record the solo that was written for him you know and we got into the, and you know I remember the first night I played it uh, I had been playing a lot of small jazz combo rhythm section kind of stuff in Rochester with some friends and and you know I was kind of experimenting with the way I put time feel on things and I started playing wave with sort of a very free rhythmic thing and at the end of that song he called a break and he walked by me and he says if you don't learn how to play with some time you'll never get to play that song again so I had to figure out what he meant by playing with time and restructure the approach, the rhythmic approach that I used to play that song. And so after I, I figured it out, and then he decided that he liked it. Yeah, that sounds like something he'd say. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> uh, you moved to Los Angeles in 1975, and uh, looking back on it now, what thoughts and feelings did you have as your career started to develop back then? Well, my first thought was I hoped that my... Um, my $1,200 that I had in my pocket and my unemployment wouldn't run out at the same time. Uh, but I, I was able, through people that I had met, uh, I came out a couple of times before that and did a couple of albums with Chuck Mangione over at A&M Records, and I met some fantastic musicians. I met Vince DeRosa, the great French horn player, and, and Kai Winding, and, and, all, and made some friends with people my age. And, and so there was a, a, a uh, like a path, I could. I moved out and lived with a friend of mine named Maiotiana. He still remains a great friend of mine. He's in Chicago now, and I lived with him and his family for ten weeks. And I played on his rehearsal band, and I met all those people. And then uh, Bruce Paulson had to leave Toshiko's band, and I so I went in to take his place on playing second trombone on Toshiko's band. And uh, then Toshiko's band started playing around a little bit, and it was kind of like this super big band. And, and so it was like getting featured in that part of the business, you know, mm -hmm. like the jazz thing. And back then, the connection between the jazz people and the, com and the studio people was closer than it is now, because mm -hmm. the legit side of things is more prevalent now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, your work in association with Jerry Hay, um, I'm a huge fan of both of you guys, and I would say it's one of the most fruitful and productive trumpet-trombone partnerships that uh, has ever existed. Um, what are your memories of how the relationship between you guys started and then and developed into what it did? Um, when I first heard Jerry Hay, it was when he was subbing on Toshiko's band for Bobby Shue playing lead trumpet. On a, we, we went up to San Francisco, I think, to play a 
concert somewhere, and Bobby couldn't make it. He was somewhere else. So they found this young guy, Jerry Hay, who was playing with a band called Sea Wind, which I was unfamiliar with. And, and he came in and played an incredibly difficult lead trumpet book and just played the heck out of it. I mean, he sounded so good on the high notes, and, and he, he was able to conceptualize the music with very little uh, runway, you know. And so right after that, I started orchestrating... Uh, Rich Man, Poor Man, the television show I was orchestrating for this composer that I went to school with named Mike Isaacson. And I had the opportunity to bring some players onto that show that I wanted to try. So I got Jerry to come in, and that was his first job at Universal. And a few months after that, he started getting calls for the Sea Wind horn section to do what at the time were uh, kind of Christian pop things. They were doing a lot of that stuff back then. And Sea Wind had sort of like a partially Christian vibe to it a little bit, you know, the lyrics of the tunes and everything. And so they didn't have a trombone player. So he asked me to do these record dates with them and we started doing these record dates together and, and figuring out phrasing so that we would all play together and marking all the notes and everything and it just kind of went from there. You mm. know. And, you know, when I look back in the 80s as a, as a fan and, and starting my career and following you guys, it seemed like every record I picked up had your guys' great horn section, which included, obviously, yourself and Jerry and, and Chuck Finley and Gary Grant, Charlie Loper, Lou McCurry. They seemed, the personnel seemed to fluctuate a bit, but the core of it seemed to be those, those guys. I mean, once it... Uh, can you talk about what it was like at the, at the kind of the apex of that section when you guys were just constantly busy? It seemed like you must have been recording every day multiple sessions a day we went through periods like that mm -hmm. when we would be in the studio uh, one way or the other uh, most of the day and late into the evening you know late into the uh, early into the morning sometimes mm -hmm. and uh, it could be just four horns which would have been probably Jerry and, and Gary Grant and me and maybe Larry Williams or, or a, another saxophone player and then uh, maybe then it would grow sometimes to be three trumpets and the two or three trombones and all those other guys that you mentioned would be there and and uh, and we got to the place where it was like a brass quintet that had been playing together for years you didn't even have to think about what anybody else was doing so that whole issue of trust where you get when you're playing on a road band for months and months and you play with the same guys every night we were able to build that up in the studios where we knew how the phrasing was going to work without talking about it after a while. And mm -hmm. it just got natural. And, it, and you can play real strong that way and you can get into where the time feel is and really, like, you can be totally committed to it that way. And that was probably one of the differences with the way that, that group sounded because everybody was so comfortable with one another they could be totally committed. Mm -hmm. Interesting, very interesting. Um, with regards to playing in a, in a horn section, to my ear, you understand the role of the trombone better than anybody and you have uh, specifically have an ability to make the trumpet sound great albeit you're working with Gary and Jerry and Chuck who happen to be uh, quite easier quite uh, quite good on their own right but can you talk about maybe just talk briefly about how you approach supporting the trumpets how you approach making the horn section sound co so cohesive well part of it is sound and I and coming from Eastman and having that whole concept of a sound being sort of a a big sound um, rather than an intentionally bright sound gives you 
uh, a little bit of leeway when you start to add octane to that. You have a big sound to start with. It's coming out like this, and then if you're going to be bright with that kind of sound, it's sizable. It can be sizable. So uh, that was that, and, and all of those trumpet players are sort of big trumpet players, like big mouthpiece trumpet players, you know, mm -hmm. and full-size Bach trumpets, not the small bore trumpets. They were playing medium or medium-large, you know. So everybody was kind of getting getting what would be kind of like a, a almost a legit sound on the horn to start with, you know. And then, um, and then phrasing, uh, I always had a tendency to phrase on tenor trombone like a lead trumpet player. The same mm -hmm. kind of crescendos and cutoffs and all of that kind of stuff. So it just naturally fit with when you're playing, you're playing third trumpet with those guys, mm -hmm. kind of, mm -hmm. in a way, you know. Then you have to blend with the saxes. That's a little different. But when you're with the trumpets, uh, then that's kind of, and the saxes are joining, then they have to play with the trumpets too. Everybody, it's a big colored trumpet section, kind of, and you'd have to think about it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really feel like for myself, I learned a lot just, even though I didn't know you back then, just hearing you on record, it gave me a real real solid idea of how to approach uh, um, playing in the section like that. Um, who would you say are your biggest influences, both tenor trombone playing and bass trombone playing? Well, um, I guess on tenor trombone, thinking about it in a jazz context, it would be um, Frank Rossellino and J.J. Johnson. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, and you know, the, I mean, the, you know, of the talking about my influences when I was starting and, and figure, trying to figure mm -hmm. out how to play. Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of influences now. You know, you're one of my influences. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's, uh, you know, I, I, I try to be influenced by all of, the, all of the players that I play with that I like. You know, I try mm -hmm. to learn what they're doing and I try to understand it and, and, and be able to uh, respond to it and, and add that to my whole stylistic vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Now, on bass trombone, uh, the, of course, George Roberts is kind of like the first, ben first influence that most bass trombone players who are now living had. Mm -hmm. Another guy who played with George a lot in L.A. was Kenny Schroer. He mm -hmm. also went to Eastman years ago. So I liked, when I heard Kenny play, it was kind of like, wow, that, that sound is like, because it was sort of what I believed I wanted to sound like that coming from Eastman, you know, mm -hmm. that he had that, mm -hmm. you know. Um, then, the, the, as a bass trombone player, I was always, I was also very influenced by baritone sax players. Mm. Charlie Fox, that played baritone sax with the Basie Band for many years, was a big influence on me about how to play bass trombone in a big band. The way he would shape the shape the line so that it sounded like, like he was adding joy to it as it went down. You know, mm. and the way he landed on low notes and, and came back up into the section and the way he, all of that stuff, I thought that was what a bass trombone was supposed to do. I'd like to just name a few of, of <coughs> artists that I know that you've played with and worked with that, are, that I'm a fan of, and, um, and maybe just like a little name association and just have you express some of your feelings about their strengths and what you've, your experience from working with them. You already mentioned the first one, but you were certainly here when, when Frank was still alive, Frank Rossellino. Yeah, well, I mean, Frank Rossellino did things on the trombone that I don't know anybody's doing yet. I don't think, mm -hmm. he, he just, it was the way the music came out of him and there just happened to be a trombone connected to the front of him, mm -hmm. you know? And because I don't know, uh, you know, I've spent my life trying to figure out how he did some of that stuff. And, and if I was a bad copy of Frank Rossellino, 
I'd be happy with that. You know? <laughs> same, same here. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Quincy Jones. Quincy is amazing. He's he like as a producer, he he's like this guy that's able to assemble people, and he assembles this great group of people when he does something. And he's got a he's got a, 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 a an incredible taste reservoir you know like he can he, his capacity to meander in and out of different kinds of music and different styles of music and be so effective at it and at his age still is awesome mm-hmm. uh, you know i mean it's uh, he's he's got hugely open ears and a hugely open mind to the way he thinks about music i think mm-hmm. great quality uh al Jarreau. al another Wow, the, my my favorite album that we did was an Al Jarreau album called High Crime, and uh, the parts that Jerry wrote for that were so hard, mm. and, but they were so fun. You know, the part as they came out, you play, listen to those things. Well, and Al's singing, Al was like, oh, he's like a drummer singing. His his time feel is like the best drummer that you ever played with, and he could sing drum parts and sing rhythmic things, and you knew that there was, I mean, when you listened to him by himself, you knew exactly where the time was. Yeah. It was just like listening to a great drummer. You mentioned that high crime record. I still listen to it. And I, I, I think it's the best rock horn section recording ever. I mean, it's just, just, well, it's my favorite. Every, every, every aspect of it is just absolute perfection. Uh, Michael Jackson. Well, Michael was an, is another one of those uh, kind of uh, genius miracle kind of, characters you know um he through the arc of his career when we were there with him for his first you know his his initial forays into the solo record business you know like the stuff that he was doing uh the energy that he had and the time feel and his his uh uh melodic capabilities and all of that kind of stuff were well, I mean, they, you know, obviously there's not a whole lot that hasn't been said about him, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. And with Quincy producing and and uh, Bruce Sweetin engineering, uh, there was and and, ha- and having the luxury of time mm-hmm. to decide we like this, we're going to fix, we're going to change this, you know. Like there was no hurriedness to it. I admit that we didn't mm-hmm. just go in and play it and leave. You know, we took our time with it and. And that was a beautiful luxury because we were able to come up with stuff that really worked well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And lastly, um, great composer, arranger who started off as a trombone player, Johnny Mandel. Johnny Mandel. He's written some of the greatest inside harmony notes I've ever played. You know, sitting in a trombone section and playing third trombone or playing the bass trombone parts for him on half notes is sort of like a real experience. And, and uh, I haven't worked for him too much in the last couple of years. I don't know how much trombone he's using, but he writes these beautiful string charts still. But he's got a big band, and I'm, I'm subbing on the big band next week. Oh, that's cool. For a gig, yeah. Um, you know, as I said in the introduction, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine that you're not the, the most recorded trombone player of all time, given the, the range of uh, recording that you've done over the years. Uh, over the past 20 years, it seems like you've been focusing a lot on, on motion picture soundtracks and, and doing a lot of that. Can you kind of just give us a general idea of what that's like, what your days look like in that, in that regard, and, uh, and how you, what you feel about that work, you enjoy that work, is uh, the, the, just kind of a range of thoughts on that. 
It's, well, it's like a, I, I, I hate to say that it's like a more adult situation. It's more, it's more like, um, it's more like a symphony orchestra job in a way, you know. Uh, I, I can differentiate that from, from the record business. The record business was probably more fun because mm. it was more casual and, and we weren't working like 50 minutes and taking a 10, you know. The, the film business is usually, well, on the TV shows, it's maybe 35, 40 players. And with the move, big movies, it's maybe 60, 70, 80, 90 players. So it's like a full symphony orchestra in the room. You're mm-hmm. going to do 50 minutes and then take a 10. And it's, so it's regulated like that. And it's not quite as um, freewheeling as a record date would be. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't... Um, you can't feature your own sense of humor out in public quite the same way <laughs> as you might if there's only four or five of you. Indeed, so I have yes. to watch myself yes, a little indeed. bit. <laughs> but it's a, it's, a, it's a great job. Yeah. And, and from a listener's perspective, some amazing uh, pieces of music, you know, in terms of uh, just, just listening to it, listening to film scores has become quite a, you know, it's like modern classical music in a certain kind of way. It you know? is. You know? It is kind of like modern very, classical very music. Very enjoyable. Yeah. Um, you know, most of our listeners are brass players, and I think, you know, among your huge range of talents, I think your doubling ability is uh, second to none. Um, I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would like to know, you know, just what you're playing on these days and, and uh, equipment-wise, mouthpiece-wise, horn-wise, what, uh, where, where, where does it uh, lead Bill Reichenbach these days? Confused. No, no. Actually, I play, I play uh, bass trombone most of the time now, and I'm playing on a Gary Greenhoe bass trombone. It's over there, uh, waiting for you to pick it up and okay. play it. Uh, and uh, and the mouthpiece is a um, George Roberts SO model, which is means slightly oversized. I think it was originally designed by Bert Herrick. That's what we think, mm. and uh, it was made by West LA Music back in the. I guess back in the early 80s or late 70s, he came out with a, a, a line of four bass trombone mouthpieces, and that was the largest one. And Lou McCurry and I both played that one. Mm. And okay. uh, so that's the one that I keep coming back to, and I've been basically playing that mouthpiece all these years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I play a lot of tuba now, nowadays. This is the tuba that I use. It's a Besson E-flat compensating tuba. I play on uh, all the Fox cartoons, like... Family Guy and American Dad and, and Cleveland and The Simpsons sometimes. I can't, I can't make all those dates. Matter of fact, they're doing The Simpsons right now. Mm. Uh, <laughs> well, we're glad you're here. <laughs> but uh, they just, you know, the beginning of The Simpsons where the little girl is playing in the band and then she gets up and walks out playing the saxophone? Right. Well, they, they did it as a tuba solo. Uh, recently, and I know on the on the 500th show, and that's me playing the tuba solo. It's oh, like a jazz cool. tuba solo for for her playing that kind of thing. So, and I love playing tuba because it's really I, it's a it's a fun instrument to play, and so I really enjoy playing it. And every once in a while, I play it on a big band. Uh, Wayne Bergeron's band has a couple of tuba parts, and so so I really like playing that. Oh, very cool. How about uh, these little guys here? Um, these are more. Uh, rare. They don't show up on film dates. They might show up on a jazz gig. Like when I play, when I go out and play with the rhythm section, I'll take the bass trombone and this is the bass trumpet. Mm -hmm. And I'll play, you know, you can, I can sort of like, instead of playing tenor trombone, I'll play on this. Mm -hmm. And, and it gives me the chance to play something on valves, you know, and it's, this is a Bach. 
This used to belong to Lou McCreary. Hmm. And it's a, a six and a half AL size Warburton mouthpiece. Okay. Uh, this is an antique horn called back in the old days a solo alto horn. Most of the times an alto horn is upright, like a euphonium. Mm -hmm. But they made these horns like this. You know, you're playing a solo, the horn's going to come out like that. And I, I really haven't come to terms with a mouthpiece on this thing, but, but this is an E-flat, so it's E-flat like an alto trombone E-flat. So... This is a con made in about um, 1895 or something like that. It's all engraved. It's, a, it's wow. just a beautiful... This horn yeah, is so beautiful, beautiful to play. Wow. Now, looking at it from the other standpoint, this is another con. This is an alto valve trombone. And so it's the same pitch as that instrument. It's obviously acoustically a little different. The bell looks different and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's a little brighter, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, surprisingly enough, back in the old days of the American Brass Band School, which was probably a 8 to 12 piece band, maybe 15 piece band, they used a lot of these alto valve trombones. Oh, this wow. was the alto voice. They didn't necessarily use those. They might have been one or the other. They didn't use French horn or anything. So, so this was not an uncommon instrument back then. Mm. And recently I played both of these on a Claire Fisher big band album that just came out. Mm. I actually played a solo on that horn, on the alto valve trombone. Wow, that's, that's a very cool sound. Different, you know, than yeah. you normally... Uh... Yeah. It's a different. It's a little different sound than a regular alto trombone too, because mm -hmm. the bore size. They don't. I don't think the. I think the bore size is smaller on that. Plus the valves. It's a little bit more compressed. Mm -hmm. You know. And Bill, thanks so much for uh, being with us today. In in closing, um, you know, given given the way the music business has evolved over the last twenty. 25 years, and you look back on your amazing career and all the experiences you have, and you look forward to, you know, just different trends in the music business. What, um, if there was any single piece of advice you'd have for a young trombonist or bass trombonist who's coming up now, um, is there any, anything you'd kind of steer him in a certain, uh, him or her in a certain direction? Well, the business isn't getting easier. Be aware of that. Um, if you think you want to make a career as a musician, uh, you have to be real prepared. You have to, you want to work on your versatility, be aware of all the different styles and stuff. You can't just practice your orchestral excerpts and then walk in and play in a big band and sound right. Mm -hmm. you, you want to try to understand what your equipment requirements are, whatever they might be. If you're going to come out here and be in the studio business or try to be in the studio business somewhere, they, uh, there's a certain expectation of doubling now that wasn't around when I started, um, although that's what I did. Uh, now, by this time, they expect all tenor trombone players to play pretty good bass trombone, and they expect all bass trombone players to be able to play something on tuba or contrabass trombone, mm -hmm. you know, which is a, a sizable investment if you just have to, if you're sweating out whether you're going to work. Mm -hmm. So it's good to have exposure to those things and to try to understand what you're going to have to do on them and maybe find yourself in a situation to borrow a horn from somebody and try it, you know, get some brass quintet experience on these odd instruments or mm -hmm. any, anything that you can do to, to expand your, your whole understanding of what, what music might be coming down in front of you because you have to figure it out real fast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great advice. Well, Bill, it's, uh, it's always a pleasure to get to spend time with you involved in music or otherwise and uh, 
Thank you so much uh, for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. And, uh, and I sure, I'm sure all our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. So thank you so much, Bill. Thank you. Yeah, man. Great.